And now, a presentation on the Mental Health News Radio Network. The Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Ryan, that is a freaking awesome question. You are the power, and you do not need anybody's permission. He's the only guy that ever crawled out of a grave where people didn't go, oh, ah! Don't worry, don't be afraid, ever, because this is just a ride. You're, you're a great interviewer. You're one of the best. If this is the best God can do, I am not impressed. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Out of Limits of Inner Tooth Radio Show. OutofLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Tonight is going to be an uplifting show. Our featured guest who's been on before is going to tell us some great stories from people who overcome insurmountable challenges and how they're living uh, their, their lives. So it's very positive. However, before we begin, I do have to bring to your attention some sad news, and that is Dr. Stephen Sinatra, renowned cardiologist who's appeared on our show several times, has died. His passing was completely unexpected, and I'll explain more in the next show what happened but uh, he was just amazing. He was an amazing guest. He was a good friend, and uh, he will definitely be missed. Just, just a beautiful, beautiful soul. Another thing I just want to bring your attention real quick is you don't need me to tell you that uh, the surrounding reality that we're living in seems like it's getting a little crazier by the day. So I would say if you can, please accelerate your efforts to stock up on food. Do whatever you can or what you think you need to do to protect yourself and to protect uh, those around you. Because the elites out there, the uh, psychopaths, they keep on putting messages out there. Like they're dropping neon hints that there's going to be food shortages. They keep on saying, uh, you know, they're, they're, all these food processing plants are suddenly going up in flames. You, you've got these cows in the middle of, I think, Kansas that just died suddenly and they, if, you know, from heat stroke. A lot of things are not adding up. And when you have a large segment of the population who's in this, you know, psycho death cult, they're they're such a they're so far gone. There's there's a there are people on our planet, they're too far gone. I don't know if they, they can ever like be come out of this. So we have to kind of live among them, but they're never gonna see what's coming. And most other people don't see what's coming. But because you question things, because you're vigilant, you see it. You know, we both see something weirds coming. So whatever you can do, please increase your um, stock up on food. I would say if you can, you can go to a place like Trader Joe's or anywhere and start getting peanut butter. Get freeze-dry food. Get honey. Honey never goes bad. And you don't have to buy it all at once. You can just get little by little. But as long as you're building a storage for it, that'd be great. So I'd say do whatever you can. But shifting back to the pure positive energy... I talked about two minutes ago. Let us begin tonight's show. It is a great honor and a privilege to welcome back to our show the very first guest we had on our program, Dr. Jeffrey Gurian, comedy writer, energy healer, teacher. There are so many things you could add to Jeffrey's name, but he's bringing a lot of light and peace into this world. And he's got a wonderful new book. First off, we can do is we can learn more about Jeffrey by going to two different websites, ComedyMattersTV.com and Stop Stuttering Now, Gurian.com. Dr. Jeffrey Gurian, welcome back to our show. 
Thanks so much, Ryan. It is always so great to be on with you. And I can't believe, you know, what you've been able to accomplish since that first episode. Your show blew up. You have the most amazing guests. And I, too, am honored to be back on with you. Thank you. And I just want to add that we have an amazing audience of listeners. I, I love engaging with these people, Jeffrey. They're, they're very smart, so it's, um, it's definitely an honor. And you have this wonderful new book. It's called Facing Adversity, Stories of Courage and Inspiration. Can you please tell us a little bit more what your book is about? Yeah, well, it's interesting to, even to me that I have books. I never thought I'd have even one book, and now I have eight books. And my first five books are about comedy, but my last three books were about hope and inspiration, and I call them my happiness series. And the first book was called Healing Your Heart by Changing Your Mind, a spiritual and humorous approach to achieving happiness. And then after I was lucky enough to recover from COVID double pneumonia, by the way, I got it when it first came out, because as you know, I'm a trendsetter. I remember. It's horrible. <laughs> I like to do things right away. I didn't want to wait. I went right out and got it. And I wound up in the hospital with COVID double pneumonia. Single pneumonia was not good enough for me. I had to go in with both lungs, you know. And uh, I was very lucky. I'm joking about it now, but it was I had never been so sick in my life. And it took me many months to recover. And while I was recovering, I was so grateful that I wrote two more books. I wanted to take a negative and turn it into a positive. So I, I, I wrote two more books, which I consider the second and third in my happiness series. The second one was called Fight the Fear, Overcoming Obstacles That Stand in Your Way. Because for the last two years, all of us have been engulfed by fear. We've never had to deal with anything like this before. And fear gets trapped inside our bodies. But fear is a bully. And it wants you to stay home and accomplish nothing. It doesn't want you to achieve your goals. And so I had to fight fear for whatever reason, and I'm not sure exactly why. I've been battling fear all my life. And I've never let it stop me. And so I make myself do everything that I find uncomfortable to do to the point where in 2019, just before the pandemic, I made myself go to Japan all alone because it was the scariest thing I could think of to do. And, and I, why was I thrived, it so scary for you? I made it, you know. But, why, was it, why was it so scary for you? I, because, see, I have ADHD. And, I, and I've been tested for it. I don't just say it. Like, everyone thinks they have that these days. It seems to be a, a very trendy thing to have. But I was tested for it. I, I face a lot of confusion. And my particular form of ADHD, it, it kind of takes away my sense of direction. So I'm always getting lost. And traveling for me is very scary because there's a thing that you tend to manifest your worst fears. So because I have fears of traveling, very bizarre things happen to me. I was once in the airport, and the, the tip of my sport jacket got caught in the zipper of my luggage, and I couldn't get it out. And I had to run across the airport like a spider, <laughs> like attached to my suitcase. It was ridiculous. And I've never seen anybody else have the kind of problems that I have when I'm traveling. My luggage falls all over. I couldn't get my clothes out once it was just locked, and, and I had to break my suitcase to get my clothes out when I got to Europe, but I never let those things stop me. I make myself travel alone because I get lost on a constant basis, and getting lost in Japan 
was a whole other story. I was literally lost every single day. And wow. I used, I, uh, they admit, the Japanese people admit that their subway system is the most complicated in the world. And I went on the subways every day. I went from Tokyo to Kyoto to Osaka. I, I performed in two comedy shows while I was there. I went to two spiritual meetings while I was there. I never let my fear stop me, but it's always there. And I wanted to write a book to let people know that you can conquer fear, that you don't have to let it get the best of you. When I was a little kid, I was afraid of the dark, and I made myself go in the dark, as scary as it was, to show myself that there was nothing to be afraid of. So when I, when I was in college, I made myself run for the president of the freshman class Despite the fact that I stuttered so badly, I could never even say my name. I could never say Gurian. And most stutterers have a very hard time saying their own name. And the reason that makes sense to me is because your name is your identity. And if you're not happy with who you are on some level, it's very hard to present yourself to other people. So stutterers have a very hard time saying their own names. And... I told myself if I could win the election, if I could be the president of the freshman class of Hunter College, that I would stop stuttering because it would show me that people liked me. Because I think I had some kind of crazy thought that I didn't really fit in and that people didn't like me. So I won the election, uh, Ryan. I was the president of this whole huge college. Uh, so awesome. And and. The really awesome thing was I still stuttered. It didn't help. And it taught me a very valuable lesson in life. It taught me that outside validation doesn't work. It doesn't matter how many people compliment you and tell you that you're fantastic and wonderful. It matters what you think of yourself. And so that started my journey on healing myself, on finding out why I created this for myself. Because my parents had sent me to speech therapy, and no one was able to help me. And I realized one day that I didn't stutter when I was alone. I could go into a room by myself, and I could speak much better than if I was trying to talk to somebody else, which told me, and I consider this grace, Ryan, it told me that you can't have a disability based on your location, right? If a man has a limp, he limps in every room of his house. He can't go into a room and close the door and walk perfectly. But if I could speak fine when I'm alone then theoretically it means that there's nothing wrong with me. And I took that bit of knowledge and I worked on myself for years. I took my mind apart, basically, to examine what thoughts I was holding that made me create self-sabotage for myself, that made me create a false disability. And as you can see, I no longer stutter. I haven't stuttered for many years. And now, as an avocation, I work with stutterers all over the world. But... I've always been fascinated by people who overcome these kind of obstacles that are put in their lives. And from a spiritual point of view, I think that we're all given obstacles, and then we have a choice. We can either let them crush us and overcome us, or we can tap into some inner strength that very often we don't know that we even had, and we can overcome those obstacles. And that's what led me to do this third book called Facing Adversity, stories of courage and inspiration. And in 1999, I started cutting out articles from newspapers and magazines of people, these unbelievable people. I'll give you an example. A little three-year-old boy was playing hide-and-seek, 
and he hides behind a tractor. He lived on a farm, and the tractor's engine was running, and he put his hands in the engine, and it cut off his hands, which is so horrible. Not only cut off his hands, but cut off the thumb of one of those hands. And his father happened to be a surgeon, but not that kind of surgeon, not a transplant surgeon, and he rushed the little boy to the hospital, but it was a holiday, and there were no transplant surgeons available. So the father assembled a team of people, and he did the surgery himself for nine hours. He had never done that kind of surgery before. He reattached his little boy's hands and the thumb and put them in casts, and after a couple of months, they took off the casts, and the transplants took. They were alive, but his hands weren't functional. It just so happened that his grandfather happened to be a martial arts master and started training him in martial arts every single day, growing up for hours at a time until he could regain the use of his hands. And today, that little boy is a famous spinal surgeon, and he runs the spinal surgery department at a hospital in Colorado. And that story just blew me away. It was just, it's so amazing to me to think, you know, I used to do surgery. You have to have a very steady hand to do any kind of surgery. But especially to do spinal surgery is unbelievable. And he was going to become a hand surgeon because he was so grateful for what he was able to accomplish. But he found more interest in spinal surgery and that's what he does. And he's also a black belt in martial arts. That, that's really amazing. And, you know, I'm so glad that you, you wrote this book because I'm finding something a little interesting. I mean, you had a lot of adversity when you were growing up. You had all these challenges that were ahead of you. And a lot of people seem to see a lot of these challenges as curses. And I can't tell you how many people I know, Jeffrey, that are very successful that have dyslexia. For some reason, it is. It seems to be a main ingredient in success. I, I can't. I mean, some people they, they they've told me about how hard it is. So, from your perspective, would you consider um, these uh, these adversities or these 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 things that look like you don't have the best cards dealt to you as blessings in disguise, as golden opportunities for you to achieve wonderful things, and that without these uh, these terrible things, without these challenges in your life that a person may not get to where they need to be or where they could be. Yeah, but you don't see it at the time. That's the interesting thing. You only see it in retrospect. It makes you work so much harder. When I was tested, the doctor who tested me said to me, it was amazing that I ever became a doctor and graduated at the top half of my class. I graduated number 54 out of 126. And he said to me, you must have had to work 10 times as hard as everyone else. And I was like, that's so true. I had to work incredibly hard. I, I faced it like a sleep disorder as well and so much confusion. And I had to really study so much harder than, uh, than other people. One of the stories in this book, Facing Adversity, is about a doctor, an internationally known brain surgeon, who was originally told he wasn't even fit for medical school. His name was Fred Epstein, and he happened to have operated on someone in my family, but he was a, a pediatric neurosurgeon, and he pioneered certain surgical techniques for the removal of tumors on the spinal cord and the brain stem that before he came along were considered inoperable. They weren't even able to do them. And he, he did at least 3,000 of these operations for free on children who couldn't afford his services. 
an amazing guy. They told him he had so much confusion from his ADHD that he couldn't even go to medical school. And here he became a world-famous surgeon. And ironically, he passed away in 2001 from a crazy bicycle accident where he himself wound up with brain injuries. And he was in the hospital for nine months until he passed away. But it just shows what he was able to overcome People tell you sometimes, they give you negative messages that you can't do something. And that's what fear does. It tells you that you're not good enough, that you're not this, you're not that, that, that you'll never be able to accomplish your goals. And some people just rise above that. And that's what fascinated me. So w while I was home, for, literally for months, I was afraid to leave the house even after I was better because everyone in the street was wearing masks and nobody knew what was going to happen, and they said you could catch this thing again. So I wanted to take a negative and turn it into a positive. And I have been collecting these stories for more than 20 years, and I put them in a folder. And in my closet, I have many folders of articles. I cut out articles whenever I see them of things that fascinate me. And this folder was called Overcoming Obstacles. And I said, this is the time to write this book because people are in need of inspiration and hope. So many people are suffering with depression and anxiety because of these last two-plus years. And so I found these stories, you know. There's a story in here of a man who was born with no arms and no legs. And at 10 years old, he considered suicide because of the bullying that he received at school because kids can be very cruel, as we all know. And if you were ever bullied as a child, that's one of the causes of the heart wounds that I talk about in that first book I wrote, Healing Your Heart by Changing Your Mind. It was not about heart disease. It's about the pains that we carry with us from childhood that stay with us as adults, and they affect every decision we make. Every time someone ever hurt your feelings or hurt you in some way or broke a promise to you, that, that stays inside of you in your heart chakra. And even though you don't want to believe some of those negative things that people said about you, on some level, we're afraid that they might be true. And they affect every decision that we make. Because every time you're called upon to make a decision, you think about what to do. You use your thoughts. Who else's thoughts can you use but your own? But if some of your thoughts are negative against yourself, your decisions are not going to work, which is why people see the same patterns in their life all the time. The, you know the same bad job over and over again, the same bad relationship that doesn't work out. And the only common denominator is you. You're the person who keeps reoccurring. So the idea is that you, we have to examine our thoughts, which is a difficult task. It's not easy to do. You have to basically take your mind apart and see what thoughts you're holding that are not valid for you, thoughts that are causing you to hold yourself back that tell you that you're not enough, that you're, that you're not smart enough, you're not good-looking enough, you're not um, rich enough, all these things that we hold against ourselves. And most of the time they're not true. And so we have to work very hard to eliminate those thoughts. And that's what these people did in this book. They told themselves that despite the hand that they were given, they were going to succeed no matter what. Uh, there's a story in here of a destitute man who couldn't even afford Christmas presents for his six children. And his wife encouraged him to write a book. 
a book for their children and a book about God. And so on his way to work on the train, he wrote this book and he sent it in. 26 publishers turned it down. They said it wasn't good enough. And he found a partner and with $300, they started their own publishing company. The book went on to sell 20 million copies 20 million copies, and that man, that destitute man who couldn't afford gifts for his children, is now a multimillionaire and a best-selling author all over the world. And that's amazing. I mean, it's like you kind of you don't realize how how close you are. I guess until you keep on trying. That's it. That you can't give up. You have to persevere. If you have the feeling that you can do something, then you owe it to yourself to keep trying, no matter what happened. 26 publishers turned them down. You know how easy it would have been to just say, forget it, to just not do it again? But he, he had the feeling that he was on to something. And all those publishers must feel really bad now that they didn't take him on as a client, you know? Um, and again, the book is filled with stories. There's another story that really moved me. This young girl, both of her parents... Uh, were drug addicts, and they both had AIDS. They both wound up succumbing to AIDS. But while she was a teenager, she got into a special school. Somehow she got into this special high school, and she won a contest where she was able to get $12,000, and she won a trip to Harvard. And that was her dream, to someday go to Harvard and she was wondering how she was going to manage to do that. And she wound up being accepted to Harvard. She entered a contest where you had to talk about what obstacles you overcame in your life. And when they heard her story, that she was a homeless girl, she wound up being homeless. She had to get her father out of a shelter and buy him a suit so he could come with her on an interview and make believe that she had a family. And when Harvard heard her story, and she, she, she graduated from high school in only two years. That's how smart she was. They had never accepted anybody with only two years of high school. They usually requested four. But when they heard her story, they gave her a full scholarship to Harvard. And That's she amazing. wound with a, a book and a TV movie about her life called Homeless to Harvard. And again, so when I read these stories, I'm like, you know, there's a whole world of people that are feeling sorry for themselves. And they're asking, why me? Which is a very common question. When I was laying in the hospital with COVID, I almost thought to myself, why me? And the spiritual answer, of course, is why not me? Whoever promised me that my life was supposed to be perfect and that nothing was ever supposed to happen to me? You know, and when you can train yourself to think that way, it makes life a little bit easier. When I was, when I was in the hospital, you know, I I had what they call a widow make a heart attack about six years ago, and I laugh now because I never thought that these things were going to happen to me. You don't grow up thinking that one day you're suddenly going to have a, a major heart attack, right? And it happened in the middle of the day, and I wind up in the hospital through a crazy story, and oh, I remember that. That's when you you're like you told the cop you're like, um, hey. I think I'm having a heart attack. I'm like, well, Bill, maybe you should go to the hospital. Well, well, thank you. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that was crazy. He's 
started looking for Google Maps. He told me he didn't know where the hospital was. And, and, and you know, and I said, well, th that's why I'm telling you. I'm not just telling everyone. I'm telling you because I thought the cops would take me to the hospital. I'm, it's so funny that you remember that story because it's such a crazy story. Yeah, how could I possibly forget? I mean, usually if somebody says I'm having a heart attack, you, well, you panic. And the, 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 I guess the people in the cops in New York are like, I, what else is new? So what? He said to me, we're stuck in traffic. It'll, it'll probably <laughs> be faster if you walk. Yeah. Like what? And it was pouring rain, and I'm standing there with an umbrella, talking to him through the car window. It was really crazy. So when I finally wound up in the hospital, the ambulance finally came and took me. I laid in the emergency room for nine hours. They put me against the wall. Luckily, some genius started me on blood thinners because it turned out they didn't know that I was having a heart attack at the time. It didn't show on an EKG. Leave it to me. I was having some weird kind of heart attack that didn't show on an EKG. So the next day, you know, usually if you have a blockage, they're supposed to do it within a certain number of hours. But with me, they waited till the next day, and they got this incredible specialist who went into my heart through my arm. And while I'm on the operating table, I wasn't fully asleep, and I felt what they were doing. They were trying to unplug this artery in my heart, and I remember joking around, even on the operating table. I said to the surgeon, I feel you in my heart, not in a romantic way, but I feel you in my heart. And the whole team started to laugh, and he said, I'll give you more anesthetic, and that's the last thing I remember, until he came to my room later that day, and he hugged me, and he said to me, I want you to know you're a miracle. And I was like, you know, not, you know what? You're the miracle. You're the guy who knew how to save me. And I was back on stage five days later performing. And the owner of the comedy club said to me, what are you crazy? You just had a heart attack. And I was like, yeah, but it's hard to get a spot here. I don't want to lose my spot. <laughs> <laughs> That's how crazy people are in comedy. It's so hard to yeah. get a spot, even with a heart attack. But I'll tell you what, when I left the hospital, their advice to me was try not to dwell on this. Try and go back and try to lead a normal life without thinking about this too much. Because it's a very weird experience that I hope no one else ever has. But to think that, that, you know, that you, your mortality was in question, that to have such a serious thing happen in the middle of your day. I, I, I had never been seriously ill before. The night before, I was out partying with the people from Sirius XM Radio. I was dancing. I was having a great time. And the next day, out of nowhere, I have this heart attack. So it just shows you that obstacles will come into your life when you least expect it. And you have a choice. You can either be crushed by it. I could have stayed home for the rest of my life just being fearful to go out. But again, I've learned that I must confront my fears. I can't let the fear stop me. I had to do that when I started performing comedy, too, because I had been writing comedy for many big stars for years before I stepped out on a stage myself. And to be honest, I was very nervous to go out there. It's like being the, the brother of a famous comedian. You know, there's a lot of pressure on you, and people already knew me in the industry, so I was really afraid to go out. And again, I had to work on my thoughts and tell myself, if other people can do this, I have to be able to do it too. You know, if you only want to be one thing in the world, if you want to be the Pope or the president where there's only one of them, yeah, there's a good chance that that's not going to happen for you.
But if you want to be something that millions of other people can do, then it's reverse egotism to think that you can't do it. It's like the nerve of you to think that you can't be a doctor when millions of people are doctors, you know? That's nerve awesome. Of, reverse egotism. I never thought of it that way. Reverse egotism, which I think is such an interesting concept to me, to think that you can't do something. It's like you have to tell yourself the nerve of you to think that you can't be a comedian when millions of people go out on stage and try to perform. And if I really thought I was funny, then that's how I'm going to find out, by going out on stage and performing. So I confronted my fear and I made myself do it. And now I do it all the time. And there's always still nervousness involved because it's a crazy thing to do, to go out on stage and try to convince strangers, total strangers, that what you think is funny is actually funny. I thought it was great. I love doing it. I mean, I, I went away. I, I miss uh, doing comedy. It just was You used to do it. I remember for about five years yeah. you used to do comedy, right? Oh, yeah. And I explained in the, that show with Dave Rubin that I wasn't really good at it, but I loved it. I mean, I loved being on the stage. It was, it was a rush. And I, I tell you what, it increases your nerves of steel. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what's happened in the past two years with the pandemic because it's been nonstop fear, fear, fear. People have been paralyzed with fear. And from my personal experience with it, I I saw that as a challenge a lot because I didn't want I didn't want to succumb to the fear at all. I never really did. I was never afraid of this thing, even though I had COVID horribly and my perspectives never changed. So I always saw it as an opportunity to, to you know to continue to, to stand for certain values, but. If you're looking at COVID, collectively speaking, do you think that it was an opportunity for a lot of people you know, to take control of their health or to overcome a lot of the fears that maybe wasn't really actualized? It was like maybe a golden opportunity that, that sailed, collectively speaking, for humanity. Because it seems that that fear has only gotten progressively worse. I mean, if you if you look around and you look on social media, you, you I guess you, you look on TV and you see what's going on. It seems that, collectively speaking, humanity is, you know, devolving. I'm just curious if you agree or disagree with that perspective and how you perceive the opportunity that was either afforded or lost with the pandemic. Yeah, it's been a very odd experience. In some ways, you know, actually certain good things came out of it. If you were lucky enough not to pass away from this uh, horrible virus, um, there was a time every night at 7 o'clock that people got on their terraces. I live in the center of Manhattan. I live in a building. I have a, a terrace. People would get out and bang pots and pans and make a lot of noise, yelling and screaming to support the first responders. And I had never seen anything like that before where people got together. You know, it, it, it created a sense of community that we were all battling this thing. It was the first time that everybody in the whole world was facing the same thing. I don't think you could go to any country and find a person who didn't know that we were in the midst of a pandemic. And that was amazing because, like, a lot of times, if you don't read the paper, you don't watch TV for a while, you don't know what's going on in the world. But with this, it affected every single person in the, in the whole world, every country. Um, in that aspect, you know, people develop things like, I was staying home for months. I started playing the piano again. I hadn't played the piano for many years. I looked at it longingly, but I was always in a hurry. I was running someplace every day, every night, always going somewhere. And having to stay home literally for many months, you know, 
I looked at things as an opportunity because, as I said, I try to take a negative and turn it into a positive. So I played the piano, and I wrote two books, and I started exercising a lot and stretching and doing things that I wanted to do because a lot of years I, I had back pain, and I didn't stretch enough. So I started doing that. What bothered me most is that the pandemic was politicized. And I can say this on your show. And by the way, I loved your episode with Dave Rubin, who you mentioned. Thank you. It was just a episode. But um, when I went, when I finally had to call an ambulance, I was sick for two weeks because they were warning people, don't go to the emergency room if you don't have to because we don't know how to treat this thing. It was too new. I got sick in March of 2020 when it first came out. As soon as the, as soon as that date happened, I mean, I caught it right away, and and it was crazy. When they took me to the hospital, I had already put myself on ZPAC. As a doctor, I always keep antibiotics in the house, and ZPAC is an antibiotic that I could tolerate, and I wasn't really aware that they were using it to try and fight COVID. Uh, usually, you take it for five days. I stayed on it for ten days. Luckily, I, I had enough. And it saved my breathing, which is why I was I was hoping that I didn't have COVID. I thought maybe I just have a flu, but I had every symptom. And the symptoms were horrible, but I could still breathe. My kids would call me and they'd say, Dad, can you breathe? Because that was the major thing that was killing people. They, they weren't able to breathe. And I could. So I thought maybe I don't have COVID. When I got to the hospital and they x-rayed my lungs, they were almost going to send me home, actually, until uh, because they were running out of rooms. But when they x-rayed my lungs, a pulmonary specialist came over to talk to me, and he said, I'm sorry to tell you, you have COVID double pneumonia. They did many tests where they shoved that swab up my nose. I felt like they were touching my brain. And they found a room for me. They actually emptied a cancer wing, and they turned it into a COVID wing. And they gave me hydroxychloroquine, before it was politicized. And let me tell you that by this, by the next day, I started feeling better already. They gave me a double dose of hydroxychloroquine in the morning, 400 milligrams in the morning and 400 milligrams at night. The first day, they didn't give me anything specific for COVID. They were just concerned with bringing down my fever. They covered me in ice. They put ice under my arms and under, you know, under my knees and in places where you would think it might be very uncomfortable, but it wasn't. They, there were so many patients, they didn't even have a pillow for me on my bed. They ran out of rooms. They were putting people in the hallways. And, I mean, it was a crazy time. They, they gave me hydroxychloroquine on that second day and zinc sulfate. And by the third day, I started feeling better already, and my oxygen stayed at 96%. And that's when they told me they were moving me. And I was like, why do you have to move me? I'm so happy in isolation. They only allowed one person in my room at a time. Everyone was wearing hazmat suits. And on the third day, they put me in a room with three other very sick men. I'll never forget that story. That was crazy. I can't believe it. Yeah, that was really crazy. And after four days, they stabilized me, and they sent me home. Yeah, I wound up in bed next to a guy from Wuhan, China. That can't even happen. That's incredible. Wow. It just added to my comedy routine, because once I got better, I talked about that on stage. My life is always a Woody Allen movie. Very bizarre things happen. 
and again, I think it goes to the fact that you te- you have to be very careful because you can manifest your worst fears. And for people who think about fearful things all the time, you're liable to bring that into your life. Your energy has a lot of strength. You know, it's not it's not an accident that very often cancer phobes, people who fear getting cancer, very often come down with it. Because if you're putting that thought out, you know, I'm a very big believer in the power of prayer and the power of thought. And your thoughts have a lot of power. And when I was in the hospital, they announced on Sirius XM that I was sick with COVID. And I started getting literally hundreds and hundreds of messages from people, some from big stars and a lot from regular people who were sending prayers for me. And I was too sick to answer anybody, but I can't tell you how those acts of kindness are so powerful that just knowing that so many people are thinking about you, to me, I believe that it has a real effect. Uh, And after I got out, I said, it's a shame that you have to be so sick to know that people care about you, (laughs) you know, because in our everyday life, we don't always tell people what they mean to us, and we really should. Because in a time like that, it's, it's, it's a rough way to find out that people care about you, you know. So the pandemic, there's a lot of confusion still. A lot of things have not come out about it. I believe that a lot of it was very political. There's no question to me that it came from Wuhan. It's not an accident that there's a virology lab in Wuhan, China. I don't think it came from a bat, you know, and I think that, they were getting a lot of funding from our country, which is, it's a very weird thing. And things go on behind the scenes, and regular people are affected by it tremendously. So many people lost people in their families because of this. All I know is that hydroxychloroquine helped me. And I think if they had continued using it, there's a good chance that it could have helped a lot of other people. I'm sure it would. When I when I first had COVID really bad, I, I was taking ivermectin and it helped dramatically. I just didn't have enough. I, I wish I wish I actually had taken more. And well, actually, you know, let me say it this way: when I first started taking the ivermectin and COVID, it definitely had a, a pretty huge impact. And I and I wish that I'd been able to, uh, to take it uh, earlier. My doctor would never prescribe it, and I went behind his back and I got it anyway. And yeah, I'm not saying that. That even if you can get somebody to prescribe it, there are pharmacies that will not fill the prescription for you. Now, ivermectin has been around for many years. Hydroxychloroquine has been used for over 60 years. They know that it's a safe medication, but you don't make any money off of it because it's cheap. And Big Pharma made billions of dollars, literally billions of dollars. I mean, and it's great that they came out with vaccines and stuff like that. But if they could have also used this other stuff, there was a terrible story that came out of Florida about a young husband who was dying, two little kids, and he was near death, and the hospital would not try ivermectin. And his wife instituted a lawsuit to try to force them to give him ivermectin. Meanwhile, there were other hospitals in Florida that volunteered that they would give him ivermectin, but he was too sick to be transferred. And while they were fighting it, he passed away. And that, to me, is such a horrible crime. Yeah, that's. I think it's horrible. And there's one thing about this, the pandemic. I thought it brought out a lot of the worst in people. Like Jeffrey, you probably you're one of the uh, 
I lost about 75 or 80 percent of my friends because of this. And not because they, they physically died, but because they, they got caught up in this this Covidian cult. And you know, I I always questioned the narrative from day one. Look, I got it. I got I got sick pretty bad. You got sick pretty bad. But even after getting sick, I didn't believe a lot of what they were saying. Most actually, a hundred percent, I didn't believe what they were saying. And this thing, it split what people. I didn't believe. It, what part of it didn't you believe? Well, I didn't believe that uh, this thing was uh, had a was. They were talking about how it was going to kill a lot of people. But it killed that it was more deadly than what it was. I mean, like this thing is horrible going mm-hmm. through it. But it had a like a recovery rate of like ninety. 98, 99%. Even though a lot of people had died from it, it still had a very high recovery rate. And they kept on saying that uh, children would, would get it and children would spread it and children needed to be masked. And, you know, and then they were saying, okay, well, by the way, you know, the thing we're going to do right now is we're going to lock you in your homes and we're going to shut the gyms down, but we're mm-hmm. going to keep the liquor stores open. So I, I, I did not, I, I thought that I, this this, is a, this should have been a personal health choice and people should have had the, the, you know, the, the right to do as they wish because that is their own body. And I felt like there was the state trying to dictate what they thought they should do with your body. Mm-hmm. Right, and it's a shame that so many people lost their jobs. So many first responders, the people who got us through this thing. Yeah, it's you horrible. Firemen yeah. and, and, and people who have families to lose your job over something like that is, is horrible. There's so much, yeah, there's a lot of misinformation, you know, that is going around, a lot of confusion, and facts that will come out in the next years, I'm sure, because there are, there are certain people who will, are not just going to accept this. They're going to keep digging for facts and find out what really happened. You know, uh, in China now, it's, it's horrible that they're keeping people in quarantine forcefully. They're dragging them out of their homes. And they're, they're killing the pets. Homes. I mean, people there can't get food. They say for a month there are people dying of starvation because they can't get supplies. So, you know, it's being handled differently in every place. Florida seems to be doing very well. Um, all I know is, like, I don't preach on what people should take. I just tell my own story. And I know that what I took helped me, and you know that ivermectin helped you. I know that hydroxychloroquine helped me. I was really struggling before. That and the Z-Pack, I keep it in the house all the time. When I get sick, it goes right to my throat, no matter what I get. If I get a cold, I wind up with a sore throat. So I always keep that in the house. And, you know, I didn't know that it was going to be influential in saving me saving my breathing. When I researched it afterwards, I found that it's specific for your lungs. It protects your lungs. So it's very important to have. And that you can still get. You can ask your doctor to write you for ZPAP, azithromycin. But the other stuff, you can't even get. I wish I could keep hydroxychloroquine in the house and ivermectin if I could get those things. But nobody knows where to get them anymore. So it's terrible that medicine became politicized. I think that's one of the worst things that happened, that people protected certain information or made certain things look that really weren't bad. Uh, I, it is pretty horrible. I want to come back to, in the basis of your book, the fact is that you highlight individuals. Who I'm sorry, all, go ahead. You know, I want to come back to your, to your book because you've highlighted individuals who've had these 
insurmountable challenges they've overcome, they've thrived. And I wonder if the opposite rings true as well, where, you know, we touched upon it a little bit earlier, but do you think that when you are faced with a challenge and you do not meet up that challenge, that you move quicker in the direction of death as opposed to life? Because sometimes people, they face these challenges, they overcome, and they've got that life force around them. Do you think that if, if people were to cower in fear and look at every challenge as a curse that, that kind of puts them faster or on a pathway out of this reality. Yes, and I'll tell you, you know, how I think about that. Um, there are spiritual answers to all of these things. When you're, when you're in a negative space, your immune system does not function as well. And I was very aware of that when I was laying in the hospital, that I had to fight to stay positive because I needed my immune system to function better. When you're in a negative space, you're also depressed. When you're depressed, your vibration lowers. We all vibrate to different degrees. You know, When you're happy, you're at a very high vibration. When you're sad, you're at a low vibration. And you know, as, as human beings, you could walk into a room, a crowded room, and if somebody is angry in the middle of that room, you'll feel it. You'll feel that energy. The same as if, if someone's very happy. Animals feel it right away. Dogs and cats are very sensitive to stuff like that. But as human beings, we tend to try and detach from that intuition that we're given. And so it's very important to, to try to stay positive. And I, you know, I had to fight to do that. I had to remind myself. When they wheeled me into the uh, emergency room, they put me in a cubicle next to a woman who was screaming, literally screaming with every breath. Oh, my God. That must sound horrible. Yeah, and, well, and it was so upsetting to me. I was like, can't you move me? I was thinking of how it was affecting me. And they said, we have no place else to put you. I'm sorry. And we can't, you know, I said, what happened to her? And they said, we can't discuss another patient with you. So I had to lay there listening to that. And I had to, I had to step outside of myself. And instead of feeling sorry for myself, I had to start trying to think how scared she must be or how much pain she must be in, in order to literally be screaming with every breath that she took. And... It made it, I, would, I, I don't even want to say it made it more comfortable. I, it made me able to stay there without going out of my mind because it was a very, very scary time. And so it's important to try to take control of your mind, no matter what you're facing, you know, and to tell yourself that for whatever reason, this is your path. Everyone has a path, like you can't only believe in these principles when it feels like your life is going perfectly. It's when it feels like nothing is going right in your life that these principles are very important. So when you get something that doesn't work out for you, you can't tell yourself, well, I'm the ultimate victim of the universe and nothing ever works out for me. It works out for other people, but not for me. The way to process that is, okay, I didn't get what I wanted, but it's, because, it's not because I'm the ultimate victim of the universe. It's because I'm supposed to have something better than that. And if I got what I thought I wanted, I wouldn't be available for the really good thing that's coming to me. And that requires patience. And unfortunately, as human beings, we tend not to have patience. We tend to want everything right away. You know, I know I'm the same way, and I have to train myself. I've been training myself for the last 25 years with these thoughts. And 
that's how you change your mind. You literally change your mind. That first book that I wrote, Healing Your Heart by Changing Your Mind, that's what it's about. It's about getting new thoughts. If your thoughts haven't been working for you, then you need new thoughts. And where are you going to get them from? You, you already know all your own thoughts, you know. And the, uh, there's a great saying that I wrote into one of these happiness books is that you can't get better with the same mind that got you sick. That's why I say it was grace that I figured out how to stop stuttering because my mind created stuttering for me, so I couldn't really figure out how to get out of it. I was given the grace to get new thoughts. And my feeling was that because I was able to cure myself that it's important that I try and help other people who have the same problem so that they can get past it. So a lot of the people in this new book, Facing Adversity, have gone on to become motivational speakers. You know, I once went to uh, an NSA group, the National Speakers Association. They had a thing in San Francisco, and I attended it because I was very interested in becoming a speaker. And there were people there. Uh, one was burned terribly in a, in a fire, disfigured in a fire. One fellow had no arms, and his family wouldn't help him not a, not in a what do you call it not in a mean way they wanted to make him self sufficient so he had to learn how to use his feet as his hands and how to dress himself and how to do all these things and so so many of these people become motivational speakers to tell other people that they don't have it so bad that no matter what you have that there's a way of getting past it this fellow that I mentioned earlier that had no arms and no legs. Um, I think he's, I said that, he, that he's become an internationally known motivational speaker. He's married to a beautiful woman, and he has four children. Four children. Meanwhile, the singles bars are filled with tall, handsome guys with all their limbs who can't get a date. And this man was able to, to meet a beautiful woman who was drawn to him at one of his speaking engagements. I read her story because I said, what an amazing person to be able to see past that. And she said she was attracted to him for what he said and for his intelligence. And now he has a beautiful family. And so those are the stories that inspire me, things like that, because it's very easy to get down and feel like, you're not going anywhere. Nothing's ever going to work out for you. And so, so far, I got all five stars on this book. Um, people are really resonating with the message. And uh, are you there, Ryan? Yeah, I'm absolutely here. Oh, okay. Yeah, it, it, it was so quiet. I wasn't No, sure. I, I'm just, uh, I have to tell you something. You have my undivided attention. You're very fascinating. No, thank you so much for saying that. Yeah, and, and it just... It just amazed me to to read about all these people. The stories go on and on, and it, it felt so good that I was able to do this book. I really felt like I turned a negative into a positive because th this COVID experience has been horrible for so many of us. So many people who are going to be listening to this show have been through so much. We've never had to deal with something like this before. 
You know, it was 100 years ago in 1918, and I can only imagine what those poor people had to go through because they had no technology. There was no Zoom. There were, I don't even think there were phones. No, but I'll tell you what. The people in 1918 had something wonderful that we didn't, that, that, that they didn't have to deal with Dr. Frauci. I mean, the fact that they didn't have to deal with them, I'd say that if they could Exactly, exactly. Well, a lot is going to come out about that as well. So. You know, there are people who are not going to let this go. The average person doesn't have the power to get to the bottom of it, but there are people who do. And I have to believe that they're going to pursue this uh, because it's not comfortable to just let it go. They're oh. going to find out the truth. Oh, I'm not letting this go. I, I am not going to let, uh, you know, I, I, those people that were, were yelling and screaming at others for not acting the way that they wanted to at the height of this thing, I'm, I am not going to let them get away with that. And I'm not going to look at them the same way. And I hope others uh, extract the justice because this is horrible. I mean, it's one thing to have this pandemic, but it's another thing to see how people reacted and how people just thought that they could dominate, and control others and just have control over their own bodies and other people's bodies. That, that, that was absolutely disgusting. So, Exactly. And yeah. it's led to a crime wave that yeah. is beyond anybody's expectation ever. New York City is in the where you live. Wave. I can't believe it. I live in one of the best neighborhoods, uh, and last week my citizen app went off. Six shots were fired right across the street from me. Uh, people are being assaulted all over my neighborhood uh, at all days, at all hours of the day, not only at night, in the middle of the afternoon, in the train stations n near me. I haven't been on a subway in more than two years. I won't go. You, it's not safe. People are being stabbed and shot and mugged and beaten. Women are being attacked, more women than men, it seems. And it's, it's out of control. It's completely out of control. And it started getting worse because of the pandemic, because of all the, the instability that we've been through. Uh, things are insane. I've never seen things as bad as they are. And again, that's why I'm writing these books on happiness, because people need to think differently. They need to have community, a sense of community, to know that they're not alone in this, that other people have gone through terrible things and have come out the other side. And for those of us who are lucky enough to survive, I think that's a message that we need to carry to other people. Couldn't agree with you more. Dr. Jeffrey Gurian, I want to thank you so much for once again gracing us with your presence. Again, Jeffrey was the very first guest we ever had on The Outer Limits. His book is called Facing Adversity, Stories of Courage and Inspiration. You can learn more about him by going to two different websites, ComedyMattersTV.com and StopStutteringNowGurian.com. Jeffrey, thank you so much. And thank you, Ryan. And I just want to say that all of these books are available on Amazon. If they just, if they don't remember the titles and they just search my name, Gurian, G-U-R-I-A-N, as in Nancy, all those books will pop up. And I just hope that, you know, you never know what you say that helps somebody. In this last quick story, a few weeks ago, I got an email from a woman who told me that one of my happiness books helped her recover from heart surgery. She's a doctor herself in Georgia, and she was involved with a women's health network and invited me to speak as a result of that book. So uh, that book happened to be Healing Your Heart by Changing Your Mind, a spiritual and humorous approach to achieving happiness. So you never know what you say. So what you're doing, Ryan, is so important, putting out a positive message to people with your show 
And uh, it's always a pleasure to be on with you. Okay, everyone, that concludes today's edition of the Out of Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Special thanks to our unbelievable guest, and special thanks as always to our virtues, Miss Carrie O'Connor, Miss Constance Dallas, and our social producer, Jenny Lamisa. To learn more about the Out of Limits of Inner Truth, please go to our website at outoflimitsradio.com. And till the next time we meet, my friends, I wish upon you an abundance of peace. Love and beers. Take care and thank you so much for listening.